0: morning, everyone. Morning. All right, who are we rooting for today? Yes. Puppies? Puppy bowl. Pu- Puppy bowl? Cool. All right, that's good to know. Uh, it was a, it was about 50-50, so that's that's nice. Uh, hey, I got some housekeeping things. If your group, yeah, I need that, thanks. If your group, uh, if your gathering group has ordered some of the Wide Awake books, I have them. Uh, so see me afterwards, and we'll hook you up with the books that you need so that your group can go through Wide Awake together, um, and then you'll get rolling on that. Uh, another thing to, to know is that the women's retreat is happening in May, and Katie's right there with her hand up, she just put it down. Uh, there's cards out there, it's in Leavenworth, which if you go up there probably tomorrow it's going to be covered in snows, but this is going to be May, so maybe the snow will melt by then, uh, maybe not. Maybe they'll have more. Uh, So that's happening. And then uh, for those of you who were with us while we were at the high school, uh, there was a woman there that helped us with all of our bookings. Her name was Vivian. Uh, Sad news, Vivian passed away this past week. um, And there's a memorial service for her on Saturday, next Saturday the 9th. Uh, If you are free to go do it, it's at the high school. Sandy, what time is it at? 2 to 4. Yeah, right in the auditorium where we where we used to walk in and, and do our stuff. Uh, so it's there, and if you would like to help out with uh, serving refreshments, you could see Sandy Jensen in the back on Saturday. She's uh, raising her hand. Uh, so we can use some of that. And so they, they asked if we would be willing to help out a little bit. So if you find yourself free and you want to go help out and serve uh, that community, it was probably hurting because she was a pivotal role at that school. and it, I, don't, I don't think it was an expected. So it was expected, but... it's never expected, right? So, uh, so yeah, if we can go there and help out with that, that'd be great. So, with that, let's pray, and then we'll dive into Romans, the last part of Romans 13. Father, we thank you uh, for this uh, time. Uh, we thank you that we can gather and learn and sing and and, and be uh, encouraged by your Spirit. And so, God, as we come before you with, uh, uh, with the Scriptures today, may your Spirit keep working in our hearts Um uh, May, may the Spirit be the teacher as well today, Lord. And uh, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When people think of Romans, the first thing, at least in... I said this when we first started the study, right? However many weeks ago it was. We're coming to the end of the study. But Romans is intimidating because when people think of Romans, the first thing we do is we zoom in on this theology of Romans. It's a thick theological book. There's a lot of theology that comes from it. Uh, good and, and, and some not as good, uh, but Romans is where that stuff comes from. And so the first 12 chapters are all theology. And, and like anything, I don't know if you've ever used binoculars, sometimes when you use binoculars you can be so zoomed in on one thing that you forget what else is happening around that thing that you're zoomed in on. Uh, when I grew up, uh, my parents used to, my dad used to drop me off at Angel Stadium, and he and mom used to go get dinner, and I would be there. This was back when we let our kids do things. Uh, but I, they would drop me off at the stadium. I'd walk in with a buddy, and I had binoculars. We'd get cheap seats, and we'd watch the game. Uh, and so, but what I noticed is that I would be in the binoculars, and I'd be watching the manager, or I'd be watching the bullpen. Or a position player trying to get tips, you know, because I was going to be a professional baseball player. And, and, and I've been watching them, and then I forget that there's an entire game going on around me. Have you ever done that with binoculars? Not necessarily baseball, but if you're looking at something, you, you forget that there's, there's a context that it's written in. Sometimes when we do this with Romans, we get so zoomed in on theology that we forget the practical side to it. I forget that, that Paul, main, uh, he's mainly addressing the problem here that people weren't getting along. And so he comes to this point, and it's, this is, he's given us some good theology, but good theology is almost meaningless unless it plays itself out in good community life. Good theology is meaningless unless it actually shapes and transforms you, changes you. You can study God all you want, but you can still be a jerk. And this is what Paul's getting at. You guys know this good theology around you. We've talked about what Christ is. We've talked about this divisions, but you're still being jerks. And so let's talk about how and that's the technical theological term for it by the way, jerks. You're still being mean. Uh, but so, so Paul pulls out, and he's zooming out, starting in Romans 12, he zooms out, and he says, this is your living sacrifice, now that you've had good theology, and he backs up a little bit more, and he says, this is what the Spirit does, he comes in and gifts, and then it backs up a little bit more, and says, this is how you relate to each other, and then he backs up a little bit more, and this is how you relate to the government, and then he backs up even more, and he says, and this is how it is all done. And he, he, mainly he's getting to the section that we'll be teaching about next week in Romans 14, where it talks about these things of disputable matters and the things that they were actually fighting over. He's laying the groundwork saying, zoom out, guys. Your good theology has to translate into good behavior and good community. If you talk to somebody about the church, this is still a problem as, as we see in the church today. Not just here, but in churches in general. Sometimes the people who look at the church from the outside don't see the people inside the church as nice people. The, the, I know you're nice people, but the, the, the stereotype that comes is that uh, we, we, we're judgmental, we're convinced that, uh, of one thing, and we do, we're not accepting of people, and we don't love people. And so Paul is addressing that same problem today. Back then, he was addressing it. And the question that's on the table when we get to this part of it is: So, what difference if you believe in Jesus? If you believe in, if you have good, proper theology, what difference does it make if it doesn't transform you? Does Christ, the and the gospel, transform your life that in such a way that it makes you a, makes a reasonable and compelling argument for its existence? Does it change you? And Paul is addressing this question today, and it's a question that we have to address as a church. Paul's question is is ruthless in these chapters. He's going to address these things that's causing division and show these things that cause division as nonsense. And if our goal as a church is to be winsome to the people who aren't here yet, we should pay attention to how Paul talks to this church in Rome. Paul wants the Roman church to be winsome. He wants people to look at it from the outside See what's going on and want to be a part of it. And in doing so, one of the, some of the things that we could take from it is Paul gives us three exchanges on what we should do. We should exchange this for this. We should exchange this. So you have blanks in your bulletin because that was fun the last time we did that. So Paul gives us three exchanges. He says you should exchange the law for love. You should exchange doing for being. And you you should exchange yourself for Jesus. First thing that Paul says, the law for love uh, look back in Romans uh, chapter thirteen. We're going to go back to verse eight. He says, "Let no debt remain outstanding." Remember, he's coming off of of this the first section of chapter thirteen where he talks about paying your taxes, and he goes, "Why we're talking about tax debt? Let no debt remain un- outstanding, except the debt of loving one another. For whoever loves others has." fulfilled the law, the commands, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be, they had them all memorized, we probably don't, are summed up in this one. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to the neighbor, therefore it's the fulfillment of the law. This is Paul getting at this concept that you can know the law and everyone he's talking to in those days, especially the Jewish Christians, knew the law very well. And Paul's saying this, like, you can know this, but until you actually have love for somebody, unless you're devoted to each other in love, the law is meaningless. He's building on this love concept that he's mentioned in chapter 12, and we discussed it, that you should be, we should be loving, we should, we should make love the fiber that ties us all together. And he's building again to Romans 14, and he's saying these things. If if you are getting in the way, and if your personal treating is getting in the way, and how other people worship, and it's causing you not to love any anybody, and your cause and your primary disposition is not loving towards someone who might believe something a little different than you are, you're missing the point. He's not saying that law wasn't important. Paul quoted, and, and in doing so, he's quoting the Ten Commandments. Paul knew the law. However, oftentimes what happens is we get so focused on what we think is the right way to do things, we get so focused on the minutia, we're so zoomed in on theology that we forget how our theology is supposed to relate to others. That's why Paul lists these four commands. He lists the back half of the commands that are listed in Deuteronomy, not Exodus, in case you're curious where he's getting. The commands are listed twice. One's in Exodus 20, this one he takes from from Deuteronomy 4, and he, he lists the back half of it. The first four commandments are the ones that have to do between us and God. Don't have any other gods, remember the Sabbath, Uh, don't make idols, don't take the Lord's name in vain. All of those have to do with our vertical relationship between us and God. Now Paul, Paul says, yeah, you got that all right. You got the theology down. Now let's talk about the horizontal relationships between you and other people. And so he lists these ones. Love one another. Don't covet. Try not to murder somebody. That's not really loving someone, right? Murder, let's, let's just, can we all agree? Murder, okay, good. Let's not do that one. A good sound theology needs to be applied not only to the vertical relationship between us and God, but good sound theology translates itself well when it impacts and changes the relationship between us and other people. Our love for God must turn into love for others. And this is Paul's whole point Uh, in in most of his writings. It's it's the center of the law, he says. It's what Jesus said. Uh, Jesus walked into a debate between two rabbis, Hillel and another guy whose name I can't really think of right now. And the law, they would debate back then, which command of the 614 is the most important? And Jesus finds himself in the middle of this. They ask him. They want to get his opinion. And he goes, uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind. He, he he ups the ante a little bit, so to speak, and says, you're all missing the point. It's not about the law. It's about the spirit of the law, which was love. And Paul talks about this. Paul picks up on what Jesus was picking up. And in 1 Thessalonians 4 9, back to his one of his earliest writings, this has been a theme for Paul. In 1 Thessalonians 4 9 and 10, he says, Now, about your love for another, we need not to write to you, for yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. In fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. Paul wanted his people, more than anything, to love others well. He says in 1 Corinthians 13, uh, the highest of Christian values. He goes through gifts, he goes through all of them, and he gets to the love chapter. At the end of it says, and now these remain, faith, hope, and love, which are great things. But the greatest of these is love. Of all the gifts and deeds mentioned in all of his writings, Paul elevates one thing above the other, love. Paul argued to the Galatians that they should regard love to others as the fulfillment of the law. The book of Galatians was an argument over do we keep the law or not? What are we bound to? And he goes, eh, love. When you love, the law will just take care of itself. Paul argued with them about it. Christ, he says, has fulfilled the law through his death, through his life, and through his resurrection. Therefore, and he says this in Romans 6, Romans 8, he's kind of repeating himself here. He says, we're no longer bound to keep the law. Because of Christ, we don't have to keep the 614 commands of what it means to be good and holy we have that taken care of it doesn't mean that we don't have ethics and what we should do and what's good and appropriate it just means that when it comes to the bottom line of it all it centers around love and through that love christ fulfills the law through us in the vertical relationship christ is informing us in the horizontal relationships we're relating with other people Love is, however, is not a permission. That, it's not permission to live reckl- recklessly. It's not a license to accept all behavior, saying, well, they're mean, but I have to love them, or they're doing something wrong, but we have to love. It's, that's not what it's saying. When we love correctly, the, the love that the Spirit gives us grows in such a way that we cannot help but do the right things and obey the commands and the standards that God has given. We should love but if only it were that, that easy, right? Loving people well doesn't actually translate to an easy task in our life. In the trenches, and the grind of living, we come across people that are very, very difficult to love. That's just the way of life. But Paul still reminds us, make love your aim. Aim for love. And if you miss to the left or right, at least you're close to love, right? Paul's telling his churches, aim for love. Do a better job at loving. That way it translates into your good theology, translates out into loving other people well. The love that Paul is pleading with is, is foundational to the Christian life. More than theology. Theology important, but theology needs to translate itself into how we treat people. And this is what Paul's getting at. So, so exchange the law for love. And then he does one more thing, he says, uh, he goes into, he says, be loving, and then he says these words, not exactly, but he says, do instead of be. Exchange doing for being. Love in such a way that, love in a way that Paul writes about it is not an action, instead it's a source of action. Love for him is not an, an intention or emotions or anything like that, love is the source for Paul you can act loving and still not be loving. For Paul, the source of your life is the heart, and the heart issue needs to be drawn out from love. The love that Paul wants us to embody is not a disposition. It's not a character. It's, it's not being ready to act under certain conditions. It, it's not an action. It's not an emotion. It's not an intention, even though it might cause intentions, even though it might cause actions, even though it's associated with feelings and emotions Whatever those are, for those of you who are non-emotional, non-feeling people, those touchy-feely things that sometimes you get a twinge of when you see a fantastic sports play. You know what I'm talking about? Those aren't love. Paul says, I want the source of your being to be love. For Paul, being loving means having the overall disposition of your heart to love. The overall disposition of your heart that overflows into obeying the teachings of Jesus. It's not something that you can turn on and off like a water switch for Paul. It's just who you are. It's the orientation of your heart. It is hot in here, right? Okay. I'm a terrible... No? You love it? <laughs> Thank you, Brendan. you are going to open up a window. Turn on a fan. But for Paul, he's talking about love. And, it, and, and you talk about love, it starts to get warm, right? Okay. <laughs> Whenever we tend to talk about love, we talk about actions. We talk about the evidence of love. But for Paul, he's going backwards. He's going upstream and when he talks about love. He's going to the source of it. This is why Paul writes to the Philippian church. Uh, this is how he does things. He says, finally, brothers and sisters... Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. This is more than just a, an outpouring for Paul. This is a mindset for Paul. This is what dictates how he lives. Paul shows us that love is not something you choose to be, but rather something that you are. It's not something you choose to do. It's something that you are already. We have accepted this false sense of thinking in our culture where we tie love to something that, uh, in our relationship, a feeling that we love, but as soon as that relationship sours, as soon as they don't do something that we like, we tie it in the conditional of love, the contract of love is broken, and then we'll start saying, well, I just, I just don't love that person anymore. That's not what Paul is saying here. Paul is saying, if you have the primary disposition of love, no matter how this person frustrates you, it doesn't mean that you have to live next to them, it doesn't mean that you have to accept everything about them, you can still love them. Paul saying, no matter how they frustrate you, no matter what they do, you can still be loving for them. That's what he's trying to get us to be. We should be so possessed by love that the overall character of our life is love. No matter what kind of situation we find ourselves in, we don't care. We don't come to our enemy and care for them and try and love them. We come to them, according to Paul, as a loving person. This way, love is not something we try and accomplish or do. Instead, love is something that we've already become. This is the love that God has for us. God is love. It's his very definition. Everything about him is good. It's his core identity. It's the primary definition that we have for God. This is why God can love somebody even though he's not pleased with them. Look in the Old Testament. He loves Israel even though he's not pleased with them. The primary disposition of his character is love. For those of you who have had children, when your three-year-old decides to Try and flush an entire roll of toilet paper down the toilet in one swoop. This disposition of love and affection towards this child, not, I'm just speaking hypothetical, Judah had never, <laughs> yesterday, uh, you can still love the little guy. Even though he does something like this, or even though he keeps you up till three o'clock in the morning, or or he tries to find and invent new ways to kill his little brother, even though all of this happens, it's still a love for him. This is what Paul's talking about. It goes deeper than the conditions that are surrounding it. It is love, and he's saying to embody it. To make it a part of who you are It's the core of who you are When you focus on the core of who you are And making your heart and how you operate out of love Everything else will take care of itself It's Super Bowl Sunday So we have to tell a football story, right? Okay Don't worry, there's a, an application that might not be football related There was a coach Anyone ever heard of Bill Walsh? Yes, one of the greatest coaches ever to live Bill Walsh, For the, uh, he was a Niners coach Weird that I would bring that up but Bill Walsh is responsible for this guy named Bill Belichick and, and, and his coaching tree. And then if you look down even further, some guy named Pete Carroll, who coached at USC uh, back in the heyday and then left because he cheated and then came here. <laughs> and then another guy named uh, Mike Holmgren, all attached to Bill Walsh. Bill Walsh had this saying, and he would say, the score takes care of itself. So he comes into an organization in San Francisco that is in the tank, much like it is now. And, and he comes in and he starts doing these principles, these standards of performance. And he, it starts with how they answer the phone. It starts, and then it goes into how they dress when they're at work, whether they're on time, the effort. And everything he starts doing, he says, give it time and the score will take care of itself. What he was getting at is, in order to win and be a winner, you can't just come in and focus on something and say, we're going to win and we're going to win 12 games. No, 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 no. You've got to back that up a little bit. The score will take care of itself. In order to be a winner, you have to live like a winner. You have to focus on the inputs. You have to focus on what's feeding the desire. And then, over time, the score takes care of itself. There was a guy named Deming who did this with economics in Japan. He said, stop focusing on the outputs. Stop focusing on what you see. Back it up a little bit. Focus on what you're putting into it. And then the economics will take, will take hold and it'll start taking care of itself. The outputs will show what the inputs were. We do this every time we fill up our car. If you put cheap gas in, the car won't run right. But if you put decent gas, if you, if you take care of your engine, if you take care of the oil and everything as it's scheduled, pay attention to what the car is telling you, then your car runs right. If you focus solely on what your dashboard is telling you, your engine can be in disarray and you would never know it. This is what Paul is getting at here when he talks about love. He says the core of who you are, focus on the inputs. What are you putting in to you? Are you starting with love? Is the core of who you are love? And then at the outpouring of it will take care of itself. Focus on the inputs and the score will take care of itself. If you pursue love, Romans 13 is about securing the source of the heart where your actions come from. If those are from love, then your mind or hearts, the source of the action, will take care of itself. If we pursue love and pursuing Christ, theology will fall into place. That's how it works. It doesn't make theology not important. It just makes theology actually change your heart and then change how we relate to others. There's one last exchange. This is how this all happens. Paul's talking about this exchange. We should be more loving. We should obey the laws. We should use our gifting. It's all framed in love, but there's one action that we have to go from. It says this in verse 11. um, We exchange ourselves for Christ. And in doing so, verse 11, understanding the present time, the hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. He's not talking about end times. Many of us will look at this and go, ooh, he's talking about end times, rapture, tribulation, whatever, we start drawing charts. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about actually waking up and realizing something. When we, he's, he's wanting us to get practical. Yes, he's dropping some major theology here, but not theology that we'd like to tie it to. He says, in other words, wake up. God's kingdom has been here. It's here. It's now. Do you see what time it is? It's not something that's far off. For those who follow Jesus, his death and his resurrection have brought us a new way to live. Not when we die. Not when the kingdom shows up. But right now. Because the kingdom that he's talking about is present. It's closer than your breath. And it's a new way to live in it. That day is here, he says, and though the rest of the world is still sleeping, it's time that Jesus' followers turn off the alarm, get out of bed, and get dressed, and see what's going on. And when you wake up and see it, you're going to have to change your clothes. The first things that we do in the morning, hopefully, you wake up, it's probably a bathroom, shower, and then you get ready for work, right? Right? There's work clothes that we have to put on. Or there's clothes that are acceptable to wear in public that probably not acceptable to wear while you sleep. And so there, there's these things. Some of you, yeah, whatever. But there's a clothing. You, you get dressed before you go out. Paul's saying here, put on the right clothes. Stop wearing the dingy ones that you're used to wearing. Change your clothes. It's a new makeover that he's wanting us to have. The way that you were before and the way that you are now should be different because of the love for Christ, because of theology that you studied, should change the way that you act. And Paul's saying, get with the times, get with the program. There's a new dress code. It might not be fashionable. It might not be something that you're used to. But but in order to follow Jesus to where he's leading you, this is the kind of clothing that's appropriate. We don't necessarily go hiking in sandals, right? For those of you who go on long walks in the wilderness, there's proper footwear. Is it sandals? Rainbows? No, no, no. It's boots. You you don't wear these big clunky boots when you go to the beach. There's right clothing to wear when you're in the right situation. And Paul's saying, hey, wake up. Get dressed. The kingdom's here. It's time for a makeover. But it's not a makeover that we do when we just stop doing bad things. That's that's bad management it's not just stop it you can have this void in your life when you say i'm going to stop doing this but if you don't replace that bad habit with something good you're easily going to fall into the bad habit so paul lists a bunch of things that are appropriate for the way people used to live sexual morality the lying dissension he lists all of this he says get rid of all those but just don't stop it. Instead, put something else on. Take something else up. And in this sense, he says, rather clothe yourself with Christ, with the Lord Jesus Christ, and do not think about how to, des- how the, to gratify the desires of your flesh. All of this to say, in other words, that we are... New creations waking up to the reality of Christ while everyone else is still sleeping and we need to get dressed. So he tells us in, the, in the, a couple verses earlier, put on the armor of light. This is the new dress code. It's a conscious effort that we need to do every day. We change our clothes. We take off the old ones. We put on the new ones. We take off the way things were, and we put on Christ. We replace the bad habits with the good ones. We clothe ourselves, as Paul says in Colossians 3.12, we clothe ourselves with compassion, with kindness, with humility, with gentleness, and with patience. In this way, when we're wearing the right clothes, people will look at us and go, hey, that's a Jesus person dressed from head to toe. That's what they are. They resemble Christ, and they're becoming people who look like Christ. My sister used to ride horses, and she'd come home after her horseback riding adventures where she she used to race barrels, and now her daughter races barrels, and they're all really good at it. And she'd come home, but she would just smell. She'd been around horses for the last six hours and shoveling what horses make and, 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 and just doing all that. So she'd come home, and she'd smell like horse. I come home from the gym or I come home from a run and I smell like sweat. Carrie says, go change. My mom and dad used to say to Robin, before you sit at the table, you're going to go shower and change your clothes. You're going because you smell like where you have been hanging around. Sometimes I work for for, for the day at a coffee shop. When I come home, I smell like coffee, which is better than what I smell like when I come back from the gym. But we pick up the smells that were around. And Paul says, hey, Soak yourselves in the way of Christ. Clothe yourself with Christ so that you begin to pick up his fragrance, so that you begin to pick up his aroma. We smell like what we spend our time with. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says it this way, you are the fragrance of Christ to those around you who are perishing and those being saved. This is how we're transformed. You immerse yourself with Jesus so that you can become like Jesus. Uh, I, I spent time with a, a, a mentor of mine this week and, and he was challenging me and what to do and, and, and some of the practices that I have and he told me something he does and maybe it's something that we can pick up. Uh, he spends 15 minutes a day in quiet silence and he, re, he, he, he recites something. He recites a section from St. Patrick's Prayer. It says this, May Christ shield me today This is a way of clothing yourself in Christ, Christ behind me, Christ before me, Christ with me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left, Christ when I lie down, Christ when I sit, Christ when I stand, Christ in the heart of everyone who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me, Christ in every eye that sees me, Christ in every ear, That hears me. What if we started our day with that? And the challenge he gave me is the same challenge I'd like to give you. 15 minutes, 10 seconds each line. What does it mean to have Christ above you? What does it mean to have Christ beneath you? We can shorten it if you want. What's it mean to have Christ to the side of you? What's it mean to have Christ in you? That way, we pick up our new clothing. And in doing so, in meditating on this, we can actually take this theology that we know about Jesus changing our life and put it to practice so that we can change the lives of the people around us. So the question doesn't come, what is the point of the church? That question doesn't even get raised anymore. Because they see us. They see Jesus. They see the transformation that takes place. They see the hope that Christ has because we have Christ beneath us, Christ above us, Christ around us, Christ within us. And any time they come into contact, they see Christ because we've clothed ourselves properly. May that be us, and may we become a people of Jesus and a people of hope. Would you pray with me? Christ, surround us today with your love, with your hope, with your presence. May our good thinking, our good theology, our good scriptural interpretation, whatever we're proud of, translate to a changed life and change people around us because of you. May we just not be loving, we just not do loving things, but maybe we become loving people, which means loving people who are really, really hard to love. And in doing so, we follow in your footsteps. Love becomes the highest ethic Love becomes what we aim for. Because when we love properly, everything else will fall in line. So Jesus, may you transform our hearts to become more like yours. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.